Matthew 13. Like Alejandro mentioned, we're going a little bit out of order in terms of the order of the verses here. Um, Jesus, if, if you've caught on to, uh, if you caught on to what's been going on in Matthew, you know there's a lot that you could say about Jesus, about Jesus as God and His power, His power over creation, the spirits over sickness, over death, um, His uh, the clarity with which Matthew presents Jesus is King the long-awaited Messiah. One thing that we see clearly as well is that Jesus is a spectacular teacher. Jesus was an amazing teacher. His his ministry was built on teaching people about the kingdom of God, of heralding the kingdom of God, of calling people to repent and be prepared for the kingdom of God. And from Matthew chapter 4 on, Jesus is teaching all sorts of people, right? All sorts of crowds. He's teaching his apostles. He's teaching his disciples beyond just the apostles. He's even teaching those who would reject him, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, the religious leaders of the time. Um, And in chapter 13, we're introduced here by Matthew to a, a collection of parables, really a different um, aspect of Jesus's teaching. And what we did last week, chapter 13, we've got uh, numerous parables just all in a row. And so what we did last week was Matthew took us through, or Matt, that Matt took us through this Matthew and um, looked at verses 10 to 17 and how Jesus taught in parables, and that these parables were illustrations that Jesus drew from the natural world, from from um, things that people would be familiar with. But these truths, they these uh, these illustrations, they taught spiritual truths. They taught spiritual truths to those that the Holy Spirit enabled to hear and understand, while at the same time obscuring those truths from those who would reject Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the parables. And Matthew 13 is a collection of these. Um, the Tonight, we look at, maybe you could say it's possibly one of the most familiar of his parables, one that you've probably, many of you at least, have heard before, the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. And what Jesus teaches in this parable is that while it's the same gospel message that go out to all, most rejected, and the rejection comes in numerous forms. And the rejection can look a whole bunch of different ways. But the true believer, the one who really hears and accepts and believes the gospel, always produces fruit. The gospel always produces fruit in the lives of those who believe it. And we're going to look at this in three different parts. 
The first thing we'll look at is just verses 1 to 3, the scene, the scene where Jesus gives this parable. Then we're going to read the parable, and I'm really just going to read it to you the way Jesus gives it, and we'll spend the third part here in the bulk of our time um, on Jesus' explanation of this parable, which is in verses 18 to 23. Now, most of the parables, Jesus doesn't break up this way, but the one he breaks up, he, the, he breaks this one up here because he's interrupted by his disciples saying, hey, Jesus, why are you teaching them in parables? So that's why there's a little bit of a break here. But let's start with just reading verses 1 to 3. We'll look at the scene. Thirteen, Chapter 13, verse 1. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. The, the scene here is Jesus, we, we left him in chapter 12. He's at this house. And remember the house that he's staying at. They don't tell us whose house it is, but this house that he's staying at, crowds, just crowds and crowds of people are coming to Jesus. And it's always important you don't minimize that in your mind. The, what Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 12 and at the beginning of verse 13, chapter 13, really helps us get a feel for the magnitude of these crowds, right? Uh, because at the end of chapter 12, his, the family of Jesus, his mom, his brothers are trying to get to him. And they're having trouble getting to him because the crowd is so dense. There's so many people here to hear Jesus teach and, and to see his miracles that um, Jesus, his, mo his mom, his brother have to relay a message to him like, hey, we're, we're out here. We'd like to talk to you. And it's interesting, right? In verse 47 of chapter 12, someone said to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered, the one Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 13, steps out of this house he steps out of his house. He goes to the Sea of Galilee. It's hard to know why he went there. Jesus often withdrew from the crowds to pray, to spend time alone with the Father. This very well may have been just one of those incidents. But as often happens, the crowd follows. Because the crowd, Jesus, there's notoriety here throughout the region about his teaching, the authority with which he teaches, the miracles he's performed, the crowds inevitably follow him. And again, it's so dense that Jesus, as he wants to teach the crowd, we see that he can't do it from the shore. There's too many people. So he steps into a boat, he pushes out a little way, a little ways from the from the beach and from the boat he sits down which is the the posture of a rabbi teaching from a position of authority he he sits down and he te um, he teaches this large crowd that is standing on the beach and he teaches them in parables 
the first parable we have here, the parable of the sower, let's read verses 3 to 9 just to read this parable. And Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's, there's really, there's four different types of soil that Jesus refers to here, but there's two other elements in the parable. The sower. The sower and the seed. Now it's the same sower and the same seed that throws the seed out on these four different types of soil. The first type Jesus tells us about is the soil that are the seed that lands on the road or on the side of the road where there is no soil. There's no soil there, so there's no opportunity for those seeds to sprout, to take root. Instead, they become bird food, right? The birds see them and go eat them up immediately. The second type of soil Jesus points out is um, the, the rocky places. So this would be where, you know, there's, there's really not much for the plant to grow into. There's not nutrients. There's not um, anything that the roots can really penetrate to. There's just a very thin layer, a superficial layer of topsoil. So the seed is easily uh, going to sprout quickly, but it's really not going to be a viable plant. You can have the seed sprout real quick, but again, there's nowhere for the roots to go. They can't penetrate into anything to get any kind of nutrients or any type of sustained growth. The other place Jesus talks about, the third place that he talks about the seeds landing is among the thorns. Uh, think about weeds in your yard, right? When you have weeds in your yard, it kills out the healthy grass. It steals nutrients from the healthy grass so that the healthy grass lives. And so even if you treat your yard and your neighbor doesn't, and your neighbor has a ton of weeds, those weeds are always trying to encroach into your yard and kill off your yard, choke out the good grass. That's the third illustration Jesus gives us in verse 7. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. But the fourth, the fourth place or illustration gives us, Jesus gives us in verse 8 is some of the seed fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. We're going to hop over to verse 18 and give the explanation here of the parable, but what immediately becomes obvious is the first three illustrations, the seed that falls by the side of the road, the seed that is... Um, that lands on the rocky soil, the seed that gets choked out by the thorns. Those are all illustrations of unbelievers. 
They take different routes to get there, but none of those seeds become viable plants. The seed is wasted in all those circumstances. They all fail. Uh, what, what, what's the point? The point of planting crops is to yield fruit. No farmer goes out and plants a farm of apple seeds or whatever without the anticipation and hope of one day getting apples from that labor. So examples one to three, they all fail, but they go different routes. It's the last illustration, the seed that falls in good soil that yields crop. That is the illustration of the believer. So let's talk more in our third part here about the parable explained. The parable explained. Now I'm just going to read the explanation Jesus gives us here, and then we'll go through and, uh, and uh, really look at the individual components one at a time. In verse 18, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The, the, the seed here, Jesus tells us in verse 19, is the word of the kingdom, the gospel, the, the message of Christ to repent and be prepared for the kingdom of God. The, the word of the kingdom is the gospel message. And it's the same gospel message that you hear proclaimed to you through your families, through your parents, through the church, over and over again. This is the same gospel message. And so what Jesus would have you do is put yourself into this parable. Uh, you are somebody by... By default, it being here tonight or here on various Wednesday nights, I think every single face I see here, I've seen at church multiple, multiple times. The seed of the gospel has been cast into your life, has been sown into your life. And so your only option is to be one of these four types of soil. That, that's your only option. You don't get the choice as to whether or not the seed of the gospel is going to be tossed your way because it has. I've been a witness to it. I've seen all of you in church many times when the gospel has been preached. And so your job is to look at this parable, examine yourself and say, what 
type of soil am I? What type of soil am I? So the first type, the, so the seed that falls by the road where there is no soil. In verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the gospel, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Who's this person? I would know. They get a chance. The seed gets thrown on them. But it's the passive here, the indifferent here, uh, the one who uh, they sit in the church, they hear the gospel, and they're indifferent to it. There's no understanding. Uh, the, the, um, there, there's nothing in their heart or their mind that sits and contemplates these gospel truths, sits and contemplates the word of the kingdom that they've heard. Now, um, where does the ability to understand the gospel come from? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what regeneration is. That's what uh, salvation happens in the life of the person when they hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit opens up their heart, opens up their mind to understand and receive that gospel. Uh, what we're going to end up at here by the end of the night is that tension that we have all the time throughout Scripture, and we're perfectly fine with it, that we are called to respond to the gospel. Are you responsible for how you respond to the gospel? 100%. There's no doubt about it. Yet, we have that assurance while at the same time knowing that it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can become the good soil. But here's the thing. Evaluate yourself. As you sit in church week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and you hear the gospel, how does it impact you? Are you a passive hearer? Are you indifferent? I mean, I've got... I, I know kids, and I was that way myself for a time. Yeah, I go to church. It's what I do. My mom drops me off. It's what my family does. It's what we've always done. It's where my friends are. We play football before, and, uh, you know, there's good snacks and stuff, and then we hang out, and it's a fun time. But you go through the motion with complete indifference to the Word of God being taught to you. If that's you, then you're in extreme danger of what it says here in um, verse 19, where the evil one comes and snatches away even that little bit of truth that has been sown in your heart. It, it, it's, uh, it, it should catch your attention. It should be a warning to you to... Ask the Lord, hey, wait a second. Lord, I recognize that I've been sitting here hearing the gospel, but without any understanding, without, without any true thought about the truths I'm hearing. And really the prayer of salvation is, Lord, 
<laughs> I don't want to be that um, soilless side of the road. Make me into good soil. Make me into a, a, a fruitful child of your kingdom. Does your ability to understand truth change truth? No. Like, if you're blind, just because you don't have the physical ability to perceive physical reality around you, does that change the physical reality around you? No. Like, that table is there. Even if I become blind all of a sudden, that table's still there. Just because I can't see it doesn't change reality. The same truth applies to spiritual truths. Your inability to understand doesn't change truth. And it's the other way. You need to be changed by the Holy Spirit. So again, if you find yourself sitting here week after week, indifferent to the things that are talked about, that would be you in verse 19. The second uh, illustration, the rocky soil, Verses 20 and 21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he fades or falls away. What's this one look like? Have you ever met people who they need a quick fix? And so they need a quick fix. They're, they're constantly searching for, they feel emptiness in their life. They feel sadness or they have some kind of crisis. And hey, maybe God is the answer, right? And yes, that God is the answer, but they come and they, they hear um, that, you know, Jesus is the answer to their problems. And I want that. I, they immediately jump on that. They're needing that quick fix. Or maybe, hey, you come and youth group seems like a cool place. Like the people here seem fun, seems like a good place to make friends. I'm excited about this Jesus thing too. There's just a, 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 a quick acceptance on a superficial level, but there's not a true heart change. It's all superficial. It's a superficial excitement about um, what's going on at church or what's going on in the youth group. But without the true heart change, it's always going to be temporary. You know, if you're excited about, uh, quote, unquote, Jesus, but it's really you're just more excited about youth group or you're more excited about church and hanging out with friends, guess what? When trials come when what jesus talks about here persecution comes because of the word how quickly they fall away like if you're following jesus because of what you think you can get from jesus you fall away when persecution starts you don't find many superficial christians in iran where like you get killed for being or saudi arabia i don't know i don't know if they're killing people still there but you don't find many superficial christians there right because to claim the name of christ could cost you your life 
But when Jesus calls us to follow him, he repeatedly calls us to count the cost. I'm going to flip ahead to Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is telling them discipleship is costly. What I'm looking for in somebody who chooses to follow me is somebody who chooses to give every bit of their life as a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Romans 12, that's what Paul calls us to, is in response to the gospel, a living sacrifice. Not something superficial that's going to fade away when times get tough. Luke 9, 57 to 62, just another example here of the call that Jesus made to follow him. You've got Luke 9, 57 to 62. You've got, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll paraphrase it for you. But you've got people who are making this superficial level of like, hey, yeah, I'm all about following you, Jesus. And we, this doesn't just happen in Christianity, right? Like we know that this happens in a lot of aspects of life where somebody gets super excited about something all of a sudden and it lasts for like two months and then the excitement wears off. It's like you think you're really wanting to take on this new hobby. And so you go to Dick's or you go to Bass Pro Shop and you like buy all the most expensive gear, right? Because like you're super excited about this new hobby. And then like in a month you're bored and like your super like $500 fishing reel just sits in the garage for like the next five years, right? Like here's the thing, that's fine to do with earthly hobbies, but Jesus Christ that he, he's not just looking to be another component you add to your life. Jesus Christ is not another hobby. Jesus Christ is not just another thing that you get interested in or a new philosophy for your life that you can discard down the road. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who died for your sins, who died to reconcile you and purchase you for himself. And so you get people who want to make a superficial commitment to Christ. In Luke 9, 57, they're going along. Someone says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? But Jesus just tells them to count the cost. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, make sure you understand what you're getting into. I'm calling for fool commitment here. Somebody else said, Lord, I want to follow you, but first let me go get my inheritance. And Jesus is like, no, no, you don't get it. If that inheritance is more important to you than following me, then then you don't realize what the call of the gospel is. You're making a superficial commitment. You might sprout up real fast, but there's no deep roots there. There's nothing there that's going to sustain you and, and keep you growing. Jesus says to him, allow the dead to go bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another one also said, Jesus, I'll follow you, 
But first, let me go say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That's exactly what he's talking about here. With those who, the seed, it falls on rocky places, so there's just a thin layer of superficial soil, and it sprouts up quickly, but the roots cannot penetrate. There's nothing there to sustain hell. So that's kind of the negative side. The positive side of that, if you're a believer, grow deep roots. Grow in depth. Grow in depth of your love and knowledge of God. That's going to be characteristic when we get to the seed that falls on the good soil. Look, that is persecution going to arise? Is the, the how does he put it here? When um, the, the sun, come, the scorching sun, the elements, the trials of life, are they, those things going to occur in all of our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be trials and there's going to be challenges and difficulties in life if you are deeply rooted in the things of God if you're a seed in good soil and growing and being nurtured on the things of God you will persevere because it's God it's the Holy Spirit who makes you persevere the third illustration Jesus gives of the unbeliever the seed that falls among the weedy thorns. Verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is the one who, it's the love of the things of this world. What did Jesus say about loving God and loving money? You can't do both. You can't do both. Just like the same patch of soil doesn't have the nutrients to sustain the weeds and the good vegetation, your heart cannot love the things of this world and the things of God. As Jesus says, what is this? Is it Luke 16.30? Or I didn't write that one down. As Jesus says, you will despise the one. Now, I don't know. That can be somebody's homework for the next two minutes is to find Luke 16 something, I think, where Jesus says you can't love God and money. Um, Oh, I found it. I beat you. Luke 16, 13. I knew it was there. Uh, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Remember when the rich man comes to Jesus and is like, hey, Jesus, tell me what I need to do to follow you. And the rich man's like, oh, or Jesus says, you know, keep all the commandments. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I do all that. What else? What else? Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He can't do it. It, it, It's the love for the things of this world overcome the love he thought he had for Christ. We'll return to that um, here.
here in a bit. But as you look at that illustration and examine your own life, it's how much do you love this world? How much do the things of this world compete with your love for God? The answer Jesus would give is as his child, as his disciple, there should be no competition. To make that illustration, there is nobody in this world, worldly speaking, that you should love more than your immediate family, right? Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters. Yet, what does Jesus say? What is it? Is it Luke? I got to take better notes. I'm sorry, guys. Luke 14. Yeah. Luke 14. Large crowds are coming to Jesus. And you know in these large crowds, there's got to be those people making superficial proclamations of faith. And Jesus turns to them and says, he wants them to get serious about what it means to be a follower of his. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, nobody is more pro-loving people than Jesus, right? So Jesus here is trying to make a strong point because the Bible couldn't be more crystal clear. You better honor your mother and father. You better love and honor your mother and father. And you better love your husband. You better love your wife. You, I mean, the Bible is crystal clear here, right? So is Jesus contradicting what the Bible is crystal clear about or just trying to make a really strong point? He's trying to make a really strong point. In comparison to your love for him, your love for him should be so great, so towering, that everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is so minuscule, it looks, it doesn't even look like love because of the comparison to the relationship, the love you have for God. Do you love this world, the sinful things of this world, or the things of God? And we'll circle back to that again here in a bit. But let's look at the good soil real quick. And I'm taking too long, so I'll try to go a little faster. The good soil. This is the believer. This is where I pray all of us would find ourselves. Verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. And brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The, the believer is the one on whom the seed lands on good soil and bears fruit. The Bible over and over and over again uses this illustration or metaphor of fruitfulness for the child of God. I go look at Psalm 1. It's through the Old Testament. Psalm 1 immediately comes to mind. Uh, we already saw it in Matthew chapter 7, verses uh, 15 to 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
it does this and the Bible says this in good and bad ways, right? Like here you see, you'll know the false prophets by their, their bad fruits. And you look at Galatians 5 and it talks about the fruits of the flesh, right? Uh, your life produces something. It, you can't help it. You're either producing the things of the flesh, the things of this world, or you're producing the fruit of the spirit. There's only two ways. But you'll know people by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. That's not to say that you're not going to make mistakes, right? Like, even if you are a good tree, a follower of Christ, you still make mistakes. First John is very clear to us that um, when we sin, we have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But the predominant display of one's life, if they are a follower of Christ, is the fruit of Christ. Galatians 5 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, um, 22 to 25. Before that, you can see the fruits of the flesh. Um, but we'll just look at the fruits of the Spirit here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Bible so confidently talks about the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. I think that's the, one of the most remarkable things about the New Testament is it is very assuring that if you are a follower of Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you and will be at work in your life. I think it's amazing how unequivocal it is. Now, it's at varying levels, right? Like that's not to say that we all are going to be at the same level of maturity. Uh, it's right here in the parable that Jesus gives us, right? He says, some will produce fruit a um, hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You know, we're all going to be at varying levels in our maturity, and that's okay. The call is to keep growing, and that should be our desire is to continue to grow. But it's okay if we're at different levels of growth that's just what the bible tells us it's is gonna be but it's just as clear that there will be growth and you know why there's that confidence because go back again who is it that can make you into good soil the holy spirit alone right you look at those first three soil types the lack of soil the shallow rocky soil the weedy, thorny soil. The only way you can get moved from those categories into the good category, the good soil category, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the whole same Holy Spirit 
that promises to give life to all who seek it in him also promises to do this work of producing fruit. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10 are really great. We're not, we don't have time to read it all. But the whole 1 to 10 is just excellent about the God's work of salvation in our lives. But you pick up in verse 8 and you see why there's this assurance of fruit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So you are made good soil, not of your own doing, the gift of God. It was the gift of God, not as a result of works. You didn't make yourself good soil. You didn't do what you needed to do to get saved, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Philippians 1.6, Paul tells the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident in the fruitfulness and the growth of the Philippians, not because of his confidence in the Philippians. It wasn't that. It was the God who was at work in them that he was confident in. He sums it up again in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation. Well, he tells them, be obedient. Grow in your obedience. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see what he's saying there? Like, you pour your all into this. When he says, he didn't say work for your salvation. He says, you've got the salvation, now work it out, live it out. Live out that salvation you already have with fear and trembling. When he says with fear and trembling, what he's saying is with your innermost being, like with everything you've got. Like, pour yourself into it completely because it is God who is at work in you. So as we apply this, where do you fall? It's, it's for each of us to examine ourselves. Which landing surface for the seed are we? Are we the, the surface by the road with no soil? Are we, are we just indifferent hearers, you know? You come because it's where your parents drop you off. And like it's where your friends are. And it's generally kind of fun to be here. You do got to sit for 30, 45 minutes and listen to some guy talk, but you get it over with. And then you go back to eating snacks and flag football or whatever. Like, are you just an indifferent here? You think back to what Jesus said about uh, the one who hears his word Matthew 7, 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, all you indifferent hearers will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great 
was its fault. If you're an indifferent here, judgment comes. And you're the foolish man who hears the word, doesn't act on it, and builds his house on the sand. Or are you the rocky place, you know, kind of the surface level Christian. It's fun. It's cool. You get to claim Jesus and go to church camp. It's a good time. And uh, you're just a surface level Christian. There's no deep roots. You haven't, you haven't really truly grown in the things of God and understanding the things of God. And one day, persecution's going to come. One day, being the Christian is not going to be the fun thing to do. It could cost you friends. It could cost you something socially. It could cost you relationships. Who knows? Maybe even more, right? We don't know what the future holds. But if it's just a superficial proclamation of Christ, that is not true saving faith. It is not a faith that perseveres. It is not a faith that lasts. Of course, the third option here, the thorny, weedy soil, the love of the world. Do you love the things of this world? Does the love and desire for the things of this world choke out your love of God? First John, we we read what Jesus said about money and you can't love money, you can't and God at the same time. First John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, not from God, but is from the world. Be good soil. Now we go back to this. This is where we'll end. Can you make yourself good? No, absolutely not. You cannot make yourself good soil. But if you want to be good soil, if that desire is in your heart, will God respond to that desire? Absolutely. That's the mystery there, right? It's 100% the work of God, but God doesn't turn anybody away. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus immediately, I'm just going to scan through a few verses here, goes out telling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Um, he, he called people to follow him. Um, but I love um, John 6. John 6, 37. Well, look at even um, Matthew 11. Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And, so you get this tension here again. The Father is sovereign and at work, but the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The Bible makes a very real and genuine call to respond to the gospel. Anybody who responds to that call will be saved. Acts, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that tension there 
that mystery that it is God who makes this good soil, that is the opposite of a discouragement. That's a complete encouragement to know that if God has put that desire in your heart, call out to him, ask him to make you good, fruitful soil for the gospel, that you want to be a fruitful child of God. And God 100% answers that call. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that your call is clear and that you don't turn away any who would come to you for salvation. Pray, Lord, that in our hearts you would not um, allow us to be indifferent to your word or superficial in how we love you and respond to you or don't let us be lovers of this world, but make us lovers of you. Grow us in our love for you. Grow us in the depth of our commitment to you and help us to be fruitful for your glory and your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.